1 Samuel 25 is a story about wisdom and folly and what you might call royal restraint. Royal restraint. 1 Samuel 25 is sandwiched in between chapters 24 and 26. We looked at chapters 24 and 26 together a couple of weeks ago. And we worked through these chapters where twice David is presented with an opportunity to kill Saul and he restrains himself. Twice. David, it turns out, learns the restraint that he practices in chapter 26 here in chapter 25. It's in chapter 25 that David learns royal restraint that prepares him to spare Saul's life a second time. It's in large part because of what he learns here. But chapter 25 is just a really unique story in the Old Testament. The pace of it slows down. There's a lot of dialogue. That's the author telling us, hey, slow down, pay attention. I think it's a pretty neat, if pretty awkward, uh, romance story in in the Bible. And so we're going to look at that. But what we see uh, at the beginning of chapter 25 is this note that Samuel has died. The narrator kind of just says, by the way, Samuel's dead, and then moves on. But, but what's happening here is that David is losing a key ally, a key spiritual ally, dies when Samuel dies. But at the same time, the Lord is raising up other sources of wisdom and insight for David in his journey to becoming a king. Now, this is like our third sermon while David is in the wilderness, while David is in the waiting, while David is in the middle. And I keep preaching these because most of my life and most of your life is spent in the middle. We are, it is spent waiting for God to do what he has promised to do. It is spent waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And what we're going to see in chapter 25 is one of those curious cases of intervention and reversal, of humility and pride as David waits for God to move. And so look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting kind of in the second half of verse 1. It says, David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Guys, that's like Scrooge McDuck money, like diving into the pond of money, swimming in it money. Okay, that's a lot. Now, the name of this man, oh, and it says he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Shearing sheep, say that like 10 times fast, right? Shearing sheep, shearing sheep is a big deal if you are in the shepherd's business. This is when you pull all your sheep in from the pastures, you cut all of their wool off, you're about to make all of your money. And so to celebrate that, you kill some of these sheep, you you, you have a feast with some of your shepherds. It's a way that a Lord rewarded the shepherds that worked for him. It's a time of festival. David has been protecting this person's sheep. It goes on to say this. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. See, David has been in the wilderness. He has been guarding and protecting Nabal's shepherds. And he thinks, hey, you know what? 
I've been working really hard for this guy. I've been keeping his shepherd safe. Maybe what I can do is see if I can get a cut of some of the food they're about to eat. I mean, after all, I'm living in the wilderness and starving half to death, so maybe this would be nice. So what David does is he sends some of his men to this guy named Nabal, uh, and he says, hey, listen, I've been protecting your sheep. I was wondering if I could uh, have some of the food you're about to eat. And uh, Nabal does not respond well. In fact, Nabal makes fun of David. He said, who is this son of, da- who is this son of Jesse? Who is this Bethlehem? I mean, he, he makes fun uh, of the king-to-be, which doesn't really seem like a smart idea, but of course that's what Nabal does. It says that Nabal is harsh and badly behaved. In fact, in Hebrew, the name Nabal means fool. The name Nabal means fool. And in fact, Abigail, when she's talking about her husband later on, says, for as his name... For as his name is, so is he. She says, Nabal's name, Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Remember that folly in the Bible is not just like ditziness. It's a, it's a state of moral bankruptcy. You do not want to be a sinner, and more importantly, you do not want to be a fool. You want to be a person of wisdom. But Nabal is as his name is, and so of course he mocks David. Of course, of course when he has had gotten free, free bodyguards for his shepherds, free protection for his sheep, he would kind of spurn the guy that's been doing all of this. And Nabal's foolishness, Nabal's harshness, incites David to anger. It sparks in David anger. And he says in verse 13 to his men, he's like, all right, guys, strap on your swords. I love that. Strap on your swords. That's like saying, all right, guys, let's get locked and loaded. We're going to go take out Nabal. And that's his intention. David is so offended and so angry that his plan is we're going to march up to Nabal's house. He's going to be having a feast and throwing a party. We're going to kick in the door and we're going to, we're going to have some words and kill everybody. But what's so great about this story is this woman named Abigail. You have Nabal, who is harsh, who is foolish, who's badly behaved. And you have this woman named Abigail, the joy of my father, who is discerning, who is, or another way of saying is of good understanding. She's beautiful. She, she is discreet. She has good taste, the text says in verse 33. And, and hearing all of these things that have happened about how her husband Nabal has rejected the king in waiting causes Abigail to go into action. Look at verse 18 of chapter 25. I'm going to read you some of this because I just think it's great, great reading. Verse 18, it says, Abigail made haste. See, Abigail has heard that Nabal has rejected David. She has heard that David and his men are locked and loaded and on their way to Nabal's house. And so it says, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Guys, this is a crazy amount of food. This is like golden corral amount of food, right? She lays them on her donkey. She said to her young men, go before me. Behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Some, some woman mumbled at Grace loud enough to hear, we never tell our husbands. <laughs> I thought that was funny. She did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now remember, David has just told his men, strap on your swords. David and his men are in battle mode. They are ready to fight. And here to this group of armed men comes Abigail riding down the mountain on her donkey like, hey guys, 
I just love her. She's great. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if, more, if by the morning I leave so much, I leave so much as one man alive. When Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his, at, at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And she goes on and makes this really impassioned plea, this long speech, where she is trying to convince David not to kill her husband, which sounds like a good wife thing to do. Like, women, please take note if you're married. Somebody tries to kill your husband. It's wise and biblical to talk them back from the ledge. But at an even deeper level, I love what she, this case that she makes to David that ends in verses 30 and 31 when she says, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, she's being very deferential of David, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that the Lord has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, she says, then you will have no cause or grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation for himself. And then the Lord has dealt well with you. The Lord will remember your servant. What she's saying is, listen, David, I know that God has made all of these promises to you about how you're going to become king. And I know that my husband has offended you. I know that you're ready to go into action and to take his life. But David, don't do that, she says. Don't do that because when you become king, you want to be able to be king and say, I became king without shedding any innocent blood. I mean, this fight, if there's a fight, it's between Saul and David. Nabal's just this jerk who lives out in Paran. And if he kills Nabal, it could be said of David that he took the throne by bloodshed. She said, don't do that. I love this little phrase. She says, don't work salvation for yourself. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to take things into your own hands? Have you ever tried to make it, take matters into your own hands, to press fast forward, to rush to the end, even if it's a good thing that you know God has promised you to move as quickly toward as you can instead of trusting God's timing and God's pace? That's what she's saying. She says, don't work salvation for yourself. Don't take matters into your own hands. And then she says, and by the way, when you become king, remember that we had this conversation. David remembers very quickly, and actually he marries Abigail. I love her speech. I love that she's warning David and, and calls him to, to restraint, to restraint, which is why David blesses Abigail three times, starting in verse 32, and says, David says to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord of the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. See, we have David learning the art of royal restraint. 
David is learning the art of royal restraint. David is given a choice between good and evil, of taking matters into his own hands and rushing to the end. And here's this woman of wisdom. Here's this woman of discretion and understanding who calls to David, who calls David to wisdom, who calls David to restraint. And David says, I have obeyed your voice. What I, what I want you to see today is a key way of understanding the Bible. What I want you to see is the way that the Bible likes to repeat itself. The fancy word for that is called recapitulation, that the Bible will take an instance or a circumstance and recapitulate that circumstance, recapitulate that instance. It'll put new characters in a similar circumstance to show us something about God. That's exactly what's happening here in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25 is an echo of a story first told in Genesis 1. So if you got your Bible, go back and flip to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verses, chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. Genesis 1 is all about God's creation of the world. Plot twist. This is not about material origins. It is not about how God made the world. It is about why God made the world. God is setting up a temple in which he will dwell with his people. And he's making giraffes and geckos and grapes and grass and bananas and wildebeests. And then he makes these human beings on the sixth day. And it says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the land. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. On the, earth. the key piece here is that God makes our first parents, Adam and Eve, notice he makes male and female in his image equally. He makes them in his image, and the image of God in you and me, it is something that we bear as descendants of Adam and Eve, it, it speaks to our sacred worth as human beings. There's not a person that you have met that lacks sacred worth. Whatever their skin color, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, every person you have met is of sacred worth. This is why C.S. Lewis says you have never met an ordinary human being. Every person is of sacred worth. But on a deeper level, this idea of the image of God is a royal designation. In the ancient Near East, kings and queens and royalty were referred to as the image of God. The Egyptians had a pharaoh who they said was the image of God, image of the sun god Ra. In the ancient Near East, the image of God was a royal designation that spoke to the gods working through this human to expand that God's rule and reign over the earth. And so God is borrowing this. By the way, he's saying this to a people who have spent generations making images of other people's gods. Fresh out of slavery, God says, you are the image of God. Fresh out of slavery, God is offering his people a royal designation 
God creates man and woman in his image, and as he does so in Genesis 1, he gives them a royal commission. He says, have dominion over all the earth, be fruitful and multiply, reign and rule is what God is calling them to do. Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, are God's vice regents over creation. They're his co-rulers through whom God will expand his rule over creation. And to these co-rulers, to these royal people, God offers a choice. In chapter 2, verse 16, God sa- the text says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, in Hebrew, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. He places them in this garden, this temple, where they can interact with him. And in the center of that garden is a tree, and he says, do not eat of this tree of Tov and Ra. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's the thing, y'all. Knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. I want Jack to have knowledge of good and evil. God forbids them the eating of this tree, not forever, but for a time, until God is ready to give it to them. Until they are ready to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve function on God's voice as the knowledge of good and evil. One day he would give it to them, just like one day I'm going to give Jack keys to a car. Hopefully it'll be driverless and keep him totally safe. But I'm not going to just stick Jack in the front seat of my car, hand him the keys and say, good luck, bud, have fun tonight with your friends. And like he and Luke Collins are going out partying, you know, at where would kids go? Chuck E. Cheese until 8.30, you know, way past their bedtime. It's not that driving is bad. We just need to give Jack the keys at the right time. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't bad. It was just about getting it at the right time. And instead of practicing restraint as royalty ought to do, Adam and Eve work salvation for themselves. They take matters into their own hands. They go running. They go eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of trusting his plan and trusting his voice, The text in Genesis 3 says, Adam listened to the voice of his wife and all of creation was plunged into curse. What I want you to see this morning is that 1 Samuel 25 is mapped right on top of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And let me show you what that means and then what that means for us. See, Adam and Eve are given a royal identity and calling and so is David. Remember David, it says that The Lord is seeking out a man who is after his own heart, who will be appointed as prince over his people Israel. And the Lord anoints David and chooses David for a royal task. Adam and Eve have also been chosen for a royal task. Have dominion over the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. Both people have a royal identity and calling. Both are given a choice between good and evil. The man of the... The name of the, this is, this is so important. The man, the man's name was Nabal and his wife Abigail. She was of Tov understanding and he was of Ra behavior. Tov and Ra. You must, you may surely eat of every tree, but not the tree of the knowledge of Tov and Ra. Anytime you see Tov and Ra, it's always a hearkening back to Genesis 1. See, David is given the same choice that Adam was given. Do I choose the way of Tov? Do I choose the way of Ra? Do I choose the way of Nabal and go and kill him and act foolishly? Or do I choose the way of Abigail, a woman of good understanding? But the plot twist to all of this is that Eve is the voice of folly. She, she is the, 
this is, this is such a hard thing to say in like a me too moment, but Paul says Eve was deceived first, then Adam. They were both went into it together, but chronologically, Eve was a couple seconds ahead of her husband. Eve is not the voice of wisdom. She is not the voice of restraint. She is just the opposite. Abigail, though, in a plot twist, by David listening to her voice, just like his ancestor Adam did, Adam, uh, D- David is called further into obedience. David is called further into wisdom. Listen, Adam is given a royal commission and a calling to rule over the earth and subdue it. David is given a royal commission and calling to be prince over his people. David and Adam both have royal identity and royal calling. D- the Adam and Eve story is about good or evil, tov and ra. David is presented with a choice between tov and ra. Adam o- obeys the voice of his wife, and ra, sin, is let loose over the world. David obeys the voice of his soon-to-be wife, Abigail, and order and goodness and wisdom come into the world. What I'm trying to say is that 1 Samuel 25, Genesis 1 and 2, they work together to create in us a hope, a stirring of expectation that maybe, just maybe, David is the new Adam. Maybe, just maybe, David is the guy that can get us back into the garden. Maybe, just maybe, Abigail is the new Eve. Since Adam and Eve left the garden, or were removed from it, God's people have had a stir of hope for a better Adam. And the author of 1 Samuel 25 is stirring us up and setting us up to say, look, David is the new Adam. I mean, in 2 Samuel 7, David is going to propose building a temple. The temple is a new Eden. The tabernacle was a portable Eden. The temple is a stationary Eden. We're trying to get back to the garden. But of course we know that David isn't the new Adam at all. We're starting to get so excited about David here toward the end of 2 Samuel, we think he really is the guy. But then all of a sudden, at the end of this chapter, we find out that David marries Abigail. That's his third wife, which seems personally to me about two too many. In 2 Samuel, David sees a woman. It's the same verb, see, that Eve saw the fruit, saw that it was good to the eye. She took it and she tasted it. It says David saw this woman Bathsheba bathing on the top of her roof. He takes her, he rapes her, and he kills her husband. That murder causes his sons to kind of go crazy. David almost loses the kingdom. Fun fact, the second half of 2 Samuel, David is back in the wilderness, not hiding from Saul, but hiding from his own children. David paves the way for us to see and find and discover the new Adam, but he is not the new Adam. Because the new Adam is Jesus. David sets the stage. If you go home and read Luke 2, which is the Christmas story, David's name is mentioned four times in Luke chapter 2. Four times. Most notably, when the angels break open the sky, for today I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, that unto you in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the better David. In the genealogy, the genealogy uh, in Luke chapter 3, you know, genealogy is those long lists of names in the Bible that you kind of glaze over and try to skip by. Luke is doing something really intentional. He connects Jesus to David and then to Adam. He's trying to show how Jesus is the better Adam 
how Jesus is the better David, Paul goes so far in Romans 5 as to say, through Adam, through one man, sin entered the world, and now through one man, this Jesus, life has been made available to all. What I want you to see this morning is this. I want to show you that the Bible is one story that points to Jesus. That starting at the very beginning and all the way through, there are these little nuggets of truth, these little hyperlinks, these little chain links that all get woven together and that when Jesus arrives in Matthew chapter 1, everything that came before it, these 39 books of the Old Testament, all of them were pointing forward to Jesus. And even in David's face, we get glimpses of Jesus' face. In Adam's face, we get glimpses of Jesus' face. I want you to see how David sets the stage for Jesus It is intentional on God's part that he is of the line of David and born in Bethlehem. That's supposed to cue you in. But most importantly, what I want you to see today is your royal identity and your calling to royal restraint. So look with me just briefly at chapter 1 Samuel 25 at the end of it. Go back to 1 Samuel 25. Starting in verse 36. So remember... Nabal decided to reject David. David is not happy about it. Abigail stops David before he can kill Nabal. She does all this without telling her husband. So then in verse 36, it says, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. That's not, that's so intentional. Do you see that on the part of the author? Nabal's the guy that thinks he's the king. That's why he treats David like trash. And Nabal's heart was very merry within him, for he was very drunk. I love the Bible. Isn't that funny? So he told him nothing. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. I mean, Abigail and her secrets. You know what I mean? In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. It's kind of, like I said, it's a cute romance. Kind of like awkward and bloody, right? Like, that guy's, her husband's dead, and now, you know, like David's making eyes at the funeral like, hey, you know? And, uh, but I love that he says, the Lord has kept me back. See, David is learning royal restraint. David is learning royal restraint. Totally sets him up for chapter 26. Totally sets him up. As descendants of Adam and Eve, friends, every Sunday morning, I have the unique privilege of addressing royalty. Every Sunday morning, I have the privilege of addressing royalty. As descendants of Adam and Eve, our first parents, you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. I love in the Chronicles of Narnia that the humans walking around, they call them son of Adam and daughter of Eve. It's intentional. Yes, you have sacred worth as an image bearer, but you at the very core of your identity, our royalty, you are the son or daughter of a king. And sin has...
entered the world and broken and fractured that image to a certain degree. Imagine some sort of like Disney-like story about a princess who has fallen asleep and woken up not to remember that she is royalty, not to remember that he is royalty. That's you. And so God sends Jesus, who is described as the firstborn over all creation. That idea of firstborn over all creation doesn't mean that Jesus was born first and is the bossy of the siblings. It speaks to prominence. It speaks to position. He's the first of all of us. He comes to us to restore that royal identity, and he does so by adopting us back into the family. Through faith in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. Go home and read Ephesians 2. It talks about that, that he predestined us before the foundation of the earth to be adopted as sons and daughters. And in so doing, Jesus brings us into his family where Peter calls us a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood priesthood. Revelation 5 says that he has called to himself people of every tribe and tongue and nation and made them to reign with his son. You and I will spend forever reigning and ruling over the new creation with Jesus. None of us will get some job in the heavenly BMV, thank you God, But the ruling and reigning that we were called to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue and fill the earth, to have dominion over all the creatures, the thing that we were called and made to do from the very beginning, we will return to do forever with Jesus. By faith, you have been adopted into God's family. By faith, God is restoring in you the fractured image of God. And he is teaching you again what it means to be royalty. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is a story, one story. The Bible is a story that is all about reminding us of our royalty and training us to be the royal sons and daughters that we are called to be. And what we see today in 1 Samuel and in Genesis is this, that one of the hallmarks of royalty is restraint. See, David practices it. Abigail, the voice of wisdom, who, by the way, is also a shadow of the Proverbs 31 woman and and the lady wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Abigail calls David to restraint. He does what Adam could not. But in both of these texts, we find that the hallmark of royalty is restraint. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, meekness is that quality where an elephant gently places his foot on the top of a child's head, but does not squish her. He could. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The hallmark of royalty, our royal identity comes with a royal calling to restraint to holding back. Restraint means refraining from getting the last word. Restraint means refraining from controlling how other people perceive me. Restraint means that, yes, I could rip that person apart with my words of criticism, or I could simply love them. Restraint means I don't throw myself into the pleasure of the body, but I abstain in grace. 
Restraint means I don't yell at the world and all of its problems, I serve it. Restraint means I don't need to be right, I don't need to get my own way. It is practicing the way of Jesus in humility. Restraint is our calling. Restraint is what David learns, and restraint means this. In the moment when I am tempted to take matters into my own hands, and the moment when I want to work salvation for myself, and the moment when I want to say, okay, Jesus, I've got this. Thank you so much for your assistance. You stay right there. I will handle this one. In that moment, in that moment, I look past. It's almost like I'm looking over the shoulder of this moment to the day that is coming when King Jesus returns and brings all things under his rule and takes all of the wants and desires and needs that I may or may not have and fulfills them. It is looking beyond this moment when I want it my way, I want it now, and practicing restraint, knowing that ultimately justice is coming. That is restraint. That is restraint. That is our calling. That is what David uncovers in 1 Samuel 25. That is where Adam falls. That is where Jesus, who is always faithful, always faithful when we are faithless, rises because it is this Jesus who practices restraint when he says in the garden, sweating blood, let this cup of suffering pass me by, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will. It is this Jesus being crucified, being mocked, saying, hey, if you're really the son of God, why don't you call on angels to come and save you? That is restraint. But it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross and despised the shame. It is for the joy that is set before us that we follow in the way of Jesus, practicing royal restraint as members of our Father's kingdom. I'm going to pray. Aaron's going to invite us to respond to that, and then on we go. God, we are so tempted to take matters into our own hands. We are so tempted to revoke the way of trust and to work salvation for ourselves. Jesus, the restraint that you show, Father, the restraint that you show in your parenting of us is so good. Would you help us tap into that today? Would you call us into our royal identity of being restrained people in the best way possible? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Kyle mentioned, we are going to take a few moments to reflect on this, and then we're going to go into communion. So on the back of your fancy program, there are two boxes. What is God saying? Um, Maybe this could be, where am I being called into restraint? What? kind of identity am I being called into? And then the second part, what are you going to do about it? Um, We do this as an effort, as a community, to not only be people who hear the word of God, but um, who do what it says. So we're going to take a few minutes, and then we'll do communion.